All right, well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 2. Deuteronomy, chapter 2. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, uh, you can actually find that on page 147. 147. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 37, so finishing out chapter 2. <clears throat> well, earlier this week, you may know that the company Amazon began streaming their latest and greatest TV series, a new take on the Lord of the Rings. Uh, now, this, this series is supposed to deal with some of those events leading up to the beloved trilogy. So there's been a lot of excitement and a lot of doubt from Tolkien fans as to whether or not Amazon was going to do it right. So, in my excitement, I decided I wanted to know what it was supposed to be before I looked at how Amazon messed it up. So I went out... And I, I got a copy of the Silmarillion, which is the, what all of this is supposed to be based on. And I started reading. I actually started at the beginning uh, with Tolkien's creation story of how Middle-earth came to be, where he introduces his readers to Iluvatar, who is the one who created Middle-earth and everything in it. Now, as you're reading it, you realize Iluvatar is not the god of the Bible, but you certainly see Tolkien's own faith showing in his description of him. And so it's kind of enjoyable. But even as Tolkien introduces us to Iluvatar, he also introduces us to another character who's named Melkor, otherwise known as Morgoth. If you can't sense the heaviness of that, then I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, if you know anything about Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, you know probably know the name Sauron. He's the main villain of the story. But Melkor came before Sauron, and Sauron, evil as he was, was actually only one of Morgoth's lieutenants. Morgoth is the one who pioneered the trail that Sauron later followed down. Now, originally in Tolkien's story, Melkor was created good. Tolkien explains that he was created by Iluvatar, along with others uh, who were called the Ainur, and these learned from Iluvatar, and he actually incorporated them into the creation of his world by making music which they heard and harmonized with in their own way. But Melkor was different because he thought better of himself. He was the strongest and the greatest of the Ainur. And so he decided to introduce his own song into the mix. And in doing so, he created discord and disharmony. Now, this happens three times, and each time it's shut off as Iluvatar acts with anger. But as Iluvatar finishes the music this third time, he turns to his creatures and he reveals to them the music that they have been singing and harmonizing with was part of a grand picture, a world that was being created and which manifested his own glory. And as the Ainur watched and looked at what they saw, they were amazed. They saw beauty they had never imagined. And in this unveiling of the world, this is the whole reason I'm bringing this up, Iluvatar speaks directly to Melkor, even though he worked in a way that was against him. And he told him directly that what he was about to see was proof that no theme could be played which did not utterly have its source in him. Even when Melkor had tried to corrupt the music to showcase his own glory, he had only managed to alter nothing. 
Louvatar tells him that no one could alter the music to his despite, and that the one who tried to would only prove to be an instrument in his hand in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself had never imagined. Now Melkor fell from glory. He became Morgoth because of his own selfish desire. He became the villain that he was because he refused to submit to his own maker and he was more in love with himself. The astonishing thing about Tolkien's story in the creation of this world is that though Melkor did his very best to accomplish evil purposes, all of his efforts ultimately failed. Although he was in rebellion against his maker, in the end he was unable to upend his maker's purposes. Although his goal was to glorify himself, even in his corruption, he found himself to be an instrument in his creator's hands who was making things more wonderful and amazing than anyone had ever imagined. Now that's a powerful message. I mean, what a way to start a story, right? To know from the beginning that even though forces of evil were going to seek to corrupt and destroy and twist things, they could not prevail in the end. Because there was someone greater than them actually calling the shots. And what he had devised was greater and more wonderful than anyone had ever imagined. And that changes the way you read everything in the rest of the Lord of the Rings. For all their fury, these forces are not ultimately in control. And I'd love, as I'm reading that, as, as I'm reading through the Silmarine, I, I'd love to give credit to Tolkien for that idea. But the fact of the matter is that he didn't come up with it. He got it from the Bible. It's plain enough to see. And it's the truth that we're looking at in our text this morning. In Deuteronomy 2, verse 26 through 37, God shows that his promises are sure. They are battle-proven. He does not fail. And within that truth and within this passage, God shows us how he rules over this world, accomplishing his purposes, working all things together for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. This is a text that ends up beckoning us in to join the chorus of the redeemed, singing about the great power and the sure promises of our great God. So let's stand and let's read this together as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. This is the word of the Lord. Moses says, So I sent messengers from the wilderness at Kidamoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I, I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. 
And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, God's promises are battle proven. That, that's the main idea of this passage. Let the devil do his best. Let the armies and the forces of hell rage. Let the wicked do their worst. They can do nothing to upset the perfect good purposes of God. And that, I think, is a comforting thought. Because it gives us something to cling to when we find ourselves faced with hard situations that test our faith, that test our obedience, and which test our resolve as followers of Christ. Now last week, we read Moses' account of how God brought the nation of Israel through its time in the wilderness. We saw that God made a way for them in the desert, that he went with them, that he sustained them, that he protected them, and he provided for them. Now, Moses is recounting to the people again how God brought them face to face with some of their enemies and how he gave those enemies into their hand and began to bless them even now before they had actually entered the promised land. This is a passage that is pretty straightforward and easy to understand in terms of what it describes, but I think that as we look into it, we see that it has actually a very complex significance for us and for those who originally heard these words. Moses has presented these events to us in a very peculiar way, which aims to make a point to us that God doesn't make promises he can't keep. This is is a passage which aims to point us to the hand of God, to see how he worked to give Israel victory in a battle which would set a tone of courageous obedience for this generation going forward. And I want to make that point to you this morning as we study the details of what's been recorded for us. I want you to see the faithfulness of God's promises so that you too will have courage to follow him. So we're going to break this passage into three points, three things that happen and which have implications for our own lives. First, we're going to look at words of peace. We see words of peace. And then second, we see an act of war. see an act of war. And finally, we see the impossible achieved. The impossible achieved. So let's begin with these words of peace. In the verses that lead up to this moment, which we had looked at last week, God had told Moses actually to prepare for war. Rise up, he said, set out on your journey and go over to the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now, if that isn't clear to you, 
you should understand this is God sounding the war horn for Israel. They are going to battle. There's no question at all here. As Israel is breaking camp and moving from the territory of the Ammonites, which they had been told not to engage, they are now headed to battle. They're going to face Sihon, the Amorite. God has given Moses and the people a command. Whereas he had told them to be very careful not to contend with Edom or Moab or Ammon as they went through their lands, now God is telling them, strap on your armor and go, because I've given Sihon and his kingdom into your hands. God is so clear to this about uh, he's so clear about this to Moses. You, I don't, honestly, as I'm reading this, I kind of expect Israel to go running straight into battle, to cross this river and to just have this epic charge across the land. But that's really not the way this goes down. In verse 26, Moses says, So I sent messengers from the wilderness of, the Kid- of Kidamoth uh, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Now, to be perfectly honest, I find Moses' actions here a little confusing because God told Moses and the people to go contend with Sion. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, Moses, what are you doing? Sending ambassadors, messengers to Heshbon, requesting that Sion is, will allow you to pass through onto the Jordan in peace. This is, this is not what comes to my mind when I think of contending with someone. Now, Moses doesn't explain exactly why he sends these messengers, so I don't have a direct answer from him as to why he, just, he didn't leave Israel straight into Sihon's territory and start kicking down doors. At the same time, there's no charge in the scriptures themselves to say that Moses wasn't obeying God by taking this step to offer peace first. And I think that, that makes a point to us. We've actually seen Moses has been in this spot before. I'm going to accept he had a better idea of the steps that God wanted him to take leading up to this engagement. So as we, as we read this, we actually see Moses is following the same pattern he did when he had gone before Pharaoh in Egypt, and he had told Pharaoh to let the people go. Every time Moses went to Pharaoh, he had offered him terms of peace if he would simply let the people go. Pharaoh had refused, and that's what led to those ten plagues. As we read what Moses said to Sihon through these messengers, we see these are very genuine terms of peace. Moses actually appeals to Sihon very personally. He he talks to him in the first person on behalf of the nation. He doesn't just say, let us pass through. He says, let me pass through your land. I will only go by the road. I I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. I won't pillage and devastate your land. You will sell me food for money. I'll pay for it that I may eat. And you'll give me water and I'll pay for that so that I may drink. Just let us pass through on foot as we did with the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar going to the Jordan to receive this land which God is giving to us. Israel's journey up to this point had taken them through places that had been difficult. And those places had had, there had been some, it hadn't been without incidents, but they had obeyed God as they went through. They didn't contend in battle with Edom, Moab, or Ammon. They had kept peace. Now Moses is extending that same contract to Sion, just as he did to these other nations. The people had proved that, they, that their focus was on the land of Canaan beyond the Jordan, So if Sion takes this deal, he loses nothing. In fact, he's going to profit from Israel because they're going to pay their way through the land. 
Moses' words here are words of peace, not war. And Sion had a choice to make. I think we have every reason to think that Moses and the people would have honored their agreement if Sion had taken it. So it is that Sion could choose peace and choose to be blessed as the people of Israel passed through his land, or he could choose to oppose them and be broken before them by the Lord. This is a very fascinating moment. God has already told Moses and the people that he's going to give Sion into their hand. That's, that's what makes this offer of peace so intriguing and, and a little confusing. This battle, though, we see comes because Sion was too hard-hearted to accept those terms. This offer of peace would have been different if it had been offered in the promised land. God had warned the people not to make peace with the Canaanites. He told them, if you do, that you will be led into sin and idolatry and that you yourselves will be spit out of the land as a result. This battle happens in preparation for that, and the only one to blame here is King Sion. As I've pondered over the way that Moses proceeded to offer terms of peace, even when God had already told him what was going to happen, I've, I've come to the conclusion that there is an important lesson for us to learn about this. Moses and the nation of Israel knew that God had promised to give them victory. But they didn't rush in and try to seize that blessing for themselves. We see that they actually waited on the Lord. That the path that God had to bring them to that point, He was going to reveal for them in due time. We see that even as they offered these terms of peace, Sion rejected them, and that this becomes the reason why He brings His armies out against them. And we see that this is how God actually fulfilled his promise to lead Israel in and to give them, uh, to give Sion and his kingdom to them as a possession, in addition to what they were already promised to receive in Canaan. Israel didn't go in and try and seize this on their own power. They waited expectantly on the Lord, and in time he made the way clear to them. Now, I think that we can be tempted to act on God's promises because they are sure, even in ungodly ways. Think about King Saul and his rash vow when his own son, Jonathan, had attacked the Philistines and the armies of Israel put them to flight. How Saul, who's late to the battle, curses any man who would dare to eat food before the evening came. It's a very silly thing to say. Now Saul thought he was being virtuous by saying that. He wanted to press the victory. But in the end, he ends up putting an obstacle in the way for his rashness. Jonathan, Saul's own son, says as much in 1 Samuel 14. Uh, Jonathan was the one who had originally started the battle. He is the one who put them to flight. He was leading the charge with the people to pursue them. And they even, as he did, were told how they came to a forest that was literally dripping with honey. And Jonathan didn't know about his father's vow because he had been at the front all day. And so as he saw this, he reaches his staff out and he eats it. And it invigorates him. and He's ready to go. And then people say, wait a second, Jonathan, uh, your father said we can't eat this, and if we do, that person will be cursed. And when they told him what his father said, Jonathan responded, my father has troubled the land. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. 
What about the way that Saul took matters into his own hands to offer a sacrifice to the Lord before they went to battle because he was tired of waiting on Samuel? Saul thought he was honoring God. But in reality, he sealed the face of his, the fate of his household and he sinned against God. Trusting God is more than merely trusting Him for the results. Trusting God means submitting ourselves to Him and coming to Him in the way that He calls us to do. The blood of Christ which secures our entrance into the throne room of heaven does not gain us entrance into the it does not gain us entrance before him to come before him in an unworthy manner. So Paul warned the Corinthians not to take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and so we must learn also to depend upon the Lord as we walk before him. The result as it was here in the days of Moses will be a clear testimony that our victory is from the Lord and not from ourselves. That brings us to our second point this morning. We see an act of war. Even though Moses offers these words of peace to King Sion, we see that he would have none of it. In verse 30, Moses explains, But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by. Uh, that was a very foolish thing to do, wasn't it? There's a reason why Edom, Moab, and Ammon were afraid of Israel. It was clear to them, and it should have been clear to Sion, that the Lord fights for Israel. Now we know from history, Sion was a pretty bold king. He had managed to carve out a decent piece of territory for himself. He'd had some success against the armies of the Moabites, and that probably played a role in his decision making here. But as bold and strong as Sion was, he had never faced the Lord in battle. And when he gathered his army and went to fight, reality was that he was rushing to his own death. God restrained Edom, Moab, and Ammon, but he did not restrain Sion. The main reason that Sion decided to go to battle instead of accepting these terms of peace, according to Moses, is that the Lord had actually hardened his heart. Like Pharaoh in Egypt, God had determined to raise Sion up and to exalt his own power against him so that the world would see and know that there is only one God who reigns in the earth, and he is a God who fights for his people. Take a close look at what Moses says to the people in verse 30 about the reason Sion rejected peace with Israel and took up a sword instead. He says, He would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. Everything Moses said to Sion and the inhabitants of Heshbon, he had previously said to the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. Though they were afraid of Israel, they did not take the sword up against them the way that Sion did. He heard the exact same message, but he would not accept it. And instead of accepting the blessing of having Israel in his land as they made their way to their new home, he lost everything. The forces of Sion crashed and broke on the forces of Israel like water on granite. One by one, the fortified cities and places fell. Israel captured all their cities and they left no survivors. The curse that was coming on the Canaanites for their sin first came on Sion. And all of this, we were told, we are told by Moses, came down to Sion's own hardness of heart. Now, as we look at this passage, there are two things that I want to show you about what happened to Sion here. First, I want you to see that everything Sion did 
he did out of his own will and of his own volition. Think about it. He was given every opportunity to avoid this. The decision to go to war with Israel was a decision that came out of his own will, out of his, the desires of his own heart. No one was there compelling him to go against his own will. No one compelled him to do this. Moses makes it very clear. He came out against Israel because he wanted to. Second, what I want to show you is that Moses makes it very clear that the reason Sihon committed this act of war, an act which led to his own destruction, was ultimately because the Lord hardened his heart. According to Moses, both of these things were happening simultaneously. It's not as if Sion could blame God or anyone else for his, own, for his decision. He was doing what was already in his heart to do. God gave Sion over to the passions of his own flesh, and the result is that he plunged himself and his people into destruction. God's sovereignty over the free decisions of man is a doctrine that we see throughout the scriptures. It's particularly clear, though, here in the case of King Sihon. Still, people wrestle with that doctrine, so I want to be sensitive to that. And I think that Moses' explanation here is really helpful for understanding just a little bit more of how that mystery works. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, we see that a king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, meaning he turns it wherever he will. That's really clear here in the case of Sion. It's also clear in the heart of Pharaoh, if we think back uh, to what Moses, what God said to Moses, where, and what Moses was commanded to say to Pharaoh, where he says in Exodus 9, verse, six, verse 16, For this reason, God says, I have raised you, that's Pharaoh, up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now that does not mean that God made Sion or Pharaoh act in a way that was against what was already in their own heart. He did not cause them to sin, but he did give them over to their sinful desires. And in so doing, they were accomplishing what he had set out to do through them. This means, as Calvin has said, that when Moses relates that Sion, king of the Amorites, did not give the Israelites passage because the Lord had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, he immediately adds the purpose which God had in view and that he might deliver him into their hand. God has a purpose even for those who do not repent and seek peace with him. They are vessels of destruction which receive the just reward of his righteous punishment. God will never turn away anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Jesus says that. The problem is that as sinners, we are not willing to seek him or to come to him. We are bound to a sinful heart that hates him. And the only way we can be delivered from that is if he acts first to remove that heart of stone from us and to give us a new heart that wants to seek after him. The question is not why God shows mercy to one and not to another. The question is why God should show mercy to anyone. And while that answer is hidden in the mind of God, the steady anchor of our hope is embedded in this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is bedrock. 
The salvation which came to Israel came because God mercifully chose to save them. They didn't deserve it. He saved them anyway. The destruction which came on Sion and the Amorites came because of their own sin and the state of their own dead hearts. It's important as we mull over Moses' words and his explanation for us as to what happened, not just in the decision-making of Sion, but also in the decision-making of God. The, the, it's important for us to understand, as Stephen Charnock explains, that the fitness of God's saints by grace for glory is the work of His hands. But the vessels of wrath which are filled for destruction are filled not by God, but by themselves. There is no charge to be laid at God's feet here for what happened to Sion. God did not act in a way towards him that was unjust. Instead, God gave Sion over to the desires of his own heart and the, destruct, the destruction that he deserved. In so doing, God accomplished his perfect and great purpose of showing his power and his justice so that the nations who heard of this would know that the Lord, he is God. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the impossible achieved. Now as we read about Sion's actions here, we see that he did everything in his own power to oppose God's purpose for Israel. But he didn't realize he was actually achieving exactly what God had purposed him to do. That men's sin, Augustine points out, is attributable to themselves. That in sinning they produce this or that result is owing to the mighty power of God who divides the darkness as he pleases. Our God does the impossible. As Paul says in Romans 8:28, which Brad read for us earlier, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Moses, as he's recounted this, has gone out of his way to emphasize that God was doing something even through the evil which Sihon intended to do. Though Sihon and his armies raged against the Lord, they ultimately posed no threat to him or to his people. Moses says, the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. Not only did God give Israel victory, he also gave them plunder. We're told how the Israelites took for themselves all the livestock which had been the Amorites. There was not a city that was too high or too fortified. The Lord gave all into their hands. This new generation of Israelites, unlike their fathers before them, did not give in to fear. They trusted God, even as these armies pressed in on them. And God delivered them, and he blessed them. This was his purpose all along, and this victory set a tone for the people moving forward, since this battle was only the beginning. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy takes place where Moses is recounting all these things just before they're about to enter the, the, the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan, and as they do... Moses knows they're going to face new, difficult challenges, new enemies, places like the city of Jericho, which had never fallen, places which their parents were afraid to go. Moses knew that this move into Canaan was going to test the people's faith. So by reminding them of how God had overcome for them in the past, 
how God had not allowed their enemies to prevail over them, Moses is laying a foundation for the Israelites to be courageous and to follow God to receive what he had set aside for them to give them as an inheritance. As such, this passage is an important reminder to us to trust in God ourselves. We don't just have a battlefield full of vanquished foes to look at. We have a hill called Calvary where God did the impossible working through, even through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to bring salvation to all who believe in him raising Jesus from the dead and seating him in authority to rule and to reign on his throne our God does the impossible and so we can look at any situation that faces us which will test our faith and we can know because his promises are battle proven we can trust them for the future the cross is the reason why we can sing with confidence. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fail. And wherefore to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. That song is dear to my heart. Because I remember trying to sing that when we had gotten Titus's lab results back and something was abnormal when he was first born. I remember how hard it was to sing that because it got tested. God's promises are battle-proven. And that's a reason why we can sing that. Friends, this isn't just a story about a battle that happened one time long ago. It's the record of how God overcame his foes. When someone wanted to do something that opposed God, they ended up fulfilling something better that he was already working. This is the record of how God blessed his people and showed the world the power of his hand to take the wicked acts of his enemies and to turn them on their head for the good of his people and the glory of his name. His promises and his faithfulness, they are battle proven. Whatever road our God leads us down, let us rest in the blood of Jesus who has secured our redemption, our salvation, and our eternal inheritance. Let's pray. God, this morning, we come to you in awe because you work in ways we had not imagined. Lord, you know all things. You know the hearts of men. You rule over angels. You are the one who spoke, and it was. The stars do your bidding. The things that we have not even discovered in the bottom of the ocean, they answer to you. The planets are set on their course by your pleasure. And yet, you have thought highly enough of us, even though we did not deserve it, to rescue us from our treason by the blood of your own Son and to give that gift to us through faith in him. We do not deserve this. And yet, you have spoken clearly in your word. And Father, this morning, 
We want to confess our hope in you and confess that whatever path you lead us down this week, this month, this year, and so on through the rest of our lives, that we trust you and we will follow you because whatever you ordain is right and you are accomplishing more than we are able even to see now. We thank you for that. We ask that you would give us the strength to follow through with that and that your promises would keep us steadfast and true in obedience and love to Christ. And I pray this in his glorious name. Amen.